Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on. Um, and you and I were talking about this a little bit offline before we got rolling. But one, I was looking at one of the sites I look at manages or tracks the P.E. ratio, the multiple of the market on a daily basis. So in real time. And what I was looking at is I believe as of today with the bump that we had, I think we're back above 22 times earnings on this thing. You look at the the uh, report that just came out this morning regarding the PCE and consumer spending. Consumer spending is pulling back. You got real estate in a, <laughs> a free fall. Automobile sales falling off a cliff. Um, like you and I were talking about, I mean, literally, if you had a, rece- a historical recessionary checklist, everything, every box has been checked. Um and then you've got a market trading at 22 times earnings. It is just, and then, and then I think the kicker to me, Tobias, is that one of the things that guys like you and I had been talking about was eventually inflation becomes a problem. The Fed will have to raise rates, and that's going to be the end of the party. Watching this thing attempting. Now I'm with you. I don't think we're off to the races. I'm not surprised that we're pressing the the index that we've been tracking all year is the Nasdaq, and I know that that's heresy. Right, because we're supposed to track the S and P 500, but since the end of 2021, we tweaked our process and we said, okay, we're going to ignore the price movements and the breakouts or breakdowns of the S and P 500. We're going to use the Nasdaq as our benchmark. So far, that has been the right move. Uh, meaning, if you if you look at the market trajectory, the Nasdaq is adhered to the downward channel in a much more tightly disciplined way, right? Where you've had a couple false breakouts on the S&P, you really haven't had any on the NASDAQ. And it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing one now because the channel we've been tracking, the NASDAQ is broken above it, but the 200-day moving average is just above the top end of that channel, and we basically closed on it today. And one of the things that we'd been talking about was, despite the fact we'd adhered to the top end of that channel, we expected at some point, especially when the 200-day moving average got above the top end of that channel, that we'd go up and test it. And the simple logic behind it was because it's extreme, right? Like whatever we w- – w- the, the, the thesis going into last year was whatever you think the normal limits of this thing is, both, both to the upside and the downside, we're going to expect extreme movements, and um, I actually wrote a, a letter to our clients at the end of 2021 telling them this, that buckle up. It's going to be more volatile than we expected. Uh, I think we'll have periods of sharp outperformance. I think we're going to have periods of sharp underperformance. And we're just going to have to see where we are when this thing plays out because, you know, just the longest bull market in U.S. history, the longest period of time was 0% interest rates, record high valuations on virtually every metric. The thing that is blowing my mind is this surge in rates and the multiple as of today is hotter than it was at the end of 2019. There's not a single economic metric you can look at that looks better right now than it did at the end of 2019, right? I mean, nothing with the Fed funds rate, 500 basis point. I mean, you know, you know me, man, Mr. Anti-Bond, right? Bond replacement strategy, right? (laughs) Guess what I've been doing the last 90 days? We backed up the truck on treasuries. I had clients call in the office thinking we'd lost our mind. Zach, what, <laughs> you're buying bonds, right? I thought bonds were, and I'm like, well, guys, the tre- treasuries were down 40% last year, right? Uh, and 
so we jumped on it and I'm sitting there going, we're collecting 4.3, 4.4% yield. That's the most we've gotten in it since 97. And then I'm looking at companies where I look at, you know, when interest, you and I talked about this so many times over the last six, seven years, right? When interest rates are zero, it's no, it's zero gravity, right? Anything can happen, right? But now you flip around and look at the, it, look at Netflix. Okay. I was looking at that the other day, right? They supposedly headline is they blow out on subscribers. Then you go down through the queue. They still post negative earnings and they're guiding for 4% growth next year, Right. And you're going, okay, so you're going to pay 35 times earnings for a company that's growing at 4% and is still burning cash? When you Plus can a go, lot of debt. What's that? Plus a lot of debt. Plus a lot of debt when you can go get four and a half from a U.S. government treasury? I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me, right? Um, so that's been the thing that is the most – so you're – again, so my take of this is I don't think that this is some reacceleration – I think that this is just those extreme moves. Just it's going to be tough. So you're 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 in line with that thinking? Yeah, I, you know, I for the most part I try to concentrate on on bottom up analysis of the companies that I buy. I just want the cash flows, and I'm trying to make sure that you know with a margin of error they'll be pretty much cash flowing and growing out into the future. And they've got the kind of business models that for the most part. We've been doing this stuff for a long time. It's going to keep on doing this stuff for a long time. They don't have to prove anything. They've kind of already proven it. But having said that, you know, I'm, I'm in the markets all the time. I do watch the – they call it the totems of the market. You know, I watch the indicators that other people look at just to sort of get an idea what's going on. And there are a few that I, I think are very interesting. One of them is the – the 10-3 inversion. So this is a, it's kind of a technical idea, but I think that the I think it's sort of intuitive. The 10-3 inversion. So you just look at the the 10-year treasury, the yield on the 10-year treasury, and you compare it to the yield on the 3-month treasury. What happens in the ordinary course is that the 3-month treasury there's less yield because your money isn't at risk for as long. The 10-year treasury, you've got the time value of money. You've got inflation to consider. You've also got anything can happen over those 10 years. You've got to have your money at risk for a longer period of time. People typically demand more yield out of that. So when you get these situations where people don't – people uh, flip that around where they want more yield out of the short-term stuff than they do out of the long-term stuff. What that seems to suggest is that they're expecting deflation, which means they're expecting assets to go down in the future. And there's a gentleman by the name of Cam Harvey. He's done some research on this. He wrote his thesis, his PhD thesis in 1986, and he looked at the four uh, recessions that had been declared before 1986. And he found that each one of them was preceded by this 10-3 inversion by about 10 months. Uh, and then you, then you go into the recession declaration. Since he published that paper in 1986, there have been four more recessions, and each one was preceded by a 10-3 inversion. So it's only eight instances. That's not very many. It might not be statistically significant, but it is over a pretty long period of time. It's 1968 to date. And I don't think it's so much an indicator as it is like a real reflection of what's going on in the markets, that the market is really anticipating deflation. They're showing that there is some fear in the near term and they're not wanting to invest out for the longer term. So when you see it, it's, its record is very good, zero false positives, and there's always been a recession every time it's occurred. So we've just seen one this time around. There's just been another inversion. 
Cam Harvey's requires an entire quarter of this inversion, which we went through on January 25. And then the average period of time from the inversion, from the end of the quarter to, of the inversion to the actual declaration of the recession is 10 months, which would put, put us out into like the last quarter of this year. The good news is that when a recession is declared, that tends to be the bottom of the crash because the markets are forward-looking. They know that so the markets tend to sell off before the recession is declared and they tend to recover when the recession is declared and the same thing is true people often say well and and cam harvey has said this as well cam harvey sort of disavowed his own metric and he says he doesn't think there's going to be a crash he thinks that it's just going to be slower growth funnily enough he said the same thing in 2008 that he thought he didn't think that that in that inversion then was predictive of a crash when we now know that that was one of the worst recessions that we've seen in a very, very long period of time. So there's this idea that I've written about in some of my books that simple models tend to outperform expert judgments. And this is the exact reason why that the, the model flips over and all the experts find all of these reasons why it's wrong. And they, then they're looking at this very simple model and it's only got four examples or eight examples or whatever it is. And so they sort of fade it, but then it turns around and bites them. So he's, he's again said it's not going to happen. And one of the things that he points to, which is the same sort of thing that he pointed to in 2008, is that employment tends to be pretty strong. But if you know anything about the way that economic data is reported, there are some indicators that tend to be leading and there are some indicators that tend to be lagging. And employment is a very lagging indicator. And it turns out it's a little bit sick. It sounds like there's something wrong with it. It sounds like Wall Street's partying when Main Street's really suffering. But when you actually see the employment numbers break... That tends to be the bottom of the stock market, and it tends to rally after that. So adding all of those things together, you can't look at the the leading indicators, which are indicating recession, and then compare them to these other ones that are not indicating recession, that tend to be lagging indicators and get any information out of them. So the order tends to be housing goes first. And anybody who's paying attention out there knows that housing is in a real genuine sort of 2008 style crash at the moment there are some pockets of the country that are down like 40 percent there are some pockets of the country that haven't really woken up to it properly yet but it's all in front of them it's the same thing happened last time and then you have orders tend to crash then you have profits tend to crash and you have employment goes last and when employment goes the stock market's often recovering because it's a forward-looking uh you know discounter of the future rather than telling you what's happened in the past so i think there's a few indicators that are out there, like the earnings for a little bit. The earnings have started, S&P 500 earnings have started rolling over a little bit. They're down from their peak. Analysts are always way too optimistic about earnings, yeah. and they always completely miss these turns. Yeah. So they've, they've all been predicting that that'll recover almost immediately. They say the same thing about housing. That'll recover almost immediately. All of these guys are just optimistic all the time because I think that's what gets you paid. That's what gets... You know, that's what keeps you employed as an analyst. But I'm in a sort of slightly different boat where I'm I'm managing money for people. And so I'm typically watching for uh, storms on the horizon. And I think this is more than a storm on the horizon. I think this is very clearly something pretty nasty coming our way. What you do about that is a different question for each person. That's a question, you know, see your financial planner, go and see Zach. <laughs> Zach has the answers for that. 
for me, I'm looking at individual companies and saying, how is this company going to weather this coming storm? Can this thing get to the other side? Does it have the economic resources? Does it have the business that can stand up? Does it have the right management team in place that's going to do something about it when it goes down? If I like all of those things, and I tend to buy them, and I don't worry too much about those economic sort of things because they will impact you or they won't. Like I've felt this way for quite a while that the market has been overvalued and over its skis and probably due for something. But there's really nothing you can do if you're if you're my style of investor, you sort of just have to keep on finding those things that sell off for no good reason and buy them. Some people will see the sell off coming, sell the companies down, and then I'll look at them and I'll say, Well, even if we do have that sort of two thousand and eight style bust, this thing's still gonna do okay. Like you can get run back and look at how they did through very rough patches. And if they do okay, then they're they're worth holding through this period. So I think that the macroeconomic indicators for the for the economy and for the market are pretty gnarly at the moment. But I do think that if you're looking for undervaluation and cash flows, then there are some pretty good opportunities out there. There are some unusually good opportunities out there. So I'm I'm excited, but I, I'm I'm aware of what's coming. Yeah, <clears throat> you hit on a lot there. I the housing, in in my opinion. Um, I think, and, and I think part of it has to do. And, and feel free to feel free to, because I'm just running this past you. I want to see what you think. I think part of it has to do with the length um, and the magnitude or the amplitude of this bull market. Um, you know, we, we I was talking on the show today, and I've said this before, but you know, t- to be a top-rated money manager and to consistently outperform over the last 15 years, you only need to do one thing, right? Which is buy the dip in tech, right? Right. right. Um, that's a lot of Pavlovian reinforcement, you know? Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we thought that this would be an extreme, extreme move and that it was going to make you kind of reminds me of, 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 you know, Jurassic Park, right? Where wasn't it Samuel Jackson that says, hold on to your butts. You know, like <laughs> just, I, you know, just, I just, I expected it to just be this kind of bucking Bronco type ride. And that's where we're at so far. The, the, the optimistic outlook on Wall Street is one of the most puzzling to me. Like when I see these guys guiding for three and a half, three to five percent earnings growth next year, um, you never want to say impossible. But I, I mean, just back of the envelope math, you kind of start going through it, and you're like, Whew, I don't see how you get there. I mean, from my perspective, I think a good outcome would be ten to fifteen percent pullback in earnings. You know, like, like I. Like, I think that that would be a pretty favorable, that'd be, I mean, just historically, right, based on what we're facing, and if it is what we think it is, that would be a lot lighter than normal. You know, I think the average recession, the 30% drop in in earnings, isn't that correct? I I don't, I don't know what the average is, but I, I I have seen some research that says that it tends to follow, you know, because those big companies are a big chunk of the, a big chunk of the economy that their earnings are pretty closely tied to what happens in the economy maybe a little bit more levered to it so yeah i would say i i don't know the numbers but i think i think i saw no i can't i can't do it off the top of my head but i i would i would say that 10 or 15 percent yeah that would be milder than i was probably expecting yeah me too i so the but the real estate one the earnings one is confounding to me the real estate one is even more confounding to me and Part of that is probably me be feeling reinforced at the fact that we've been right about real estate, just saying that, hey, you know, there, 
for a lot of the last year and a half, it's been a debate. No, housing prices aren't going to go down. Demand is too strong. And I've just been sitting there going, hey, guys, pull out a mortgage calculator, right? This isn't a buyer's strike, you know, right? There is only, there's not a lot of price elasticity in housing, especially over a short period of time. When the payment size of a mortgage doubles in 18 months, you've just eliminated a big swath of the, 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 the populace that can afford a home. So I've just looked at it and said, look, I think the housing situation is pretty simple. Before you see a bottom in a rebound in housing, you got to get one of two things and probably two things, right? You need to at least see a big pullback in rates accompanied with somewhat of a pull, continued pullback in housing. And I, I just can't see through that. You know what I mean? Like without, and again, I, I think perspective is one of the things that's tripping up a lot of people, right? They're like, well, we're already down 15% in major markets. You're saying you think we'd go down another 15 or 20. That would put us right next to how much we lost in the Great Recession. And I'm like, yeah, but home prices weren't up 65% throughout 06 and 07, right? So a pullback to valuations you were at two years ago that's not a crash. Um, and then, and then, and I wanted to run this by you. Have you been watching home builder stocks? Yeah, they've been rallying. Explain that one to me. <laughs> I was hoping you could not just rallying, Toby, pushing all time highs. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, one of the things I've learned in this job is don't dismiss price action, right? Like don't, but I, I just can't wrap my head around that one, man. What do we make of the housing stocks? Well, I think there's two there's two things that the bulls hang their hat on the fact that rates have risen so fast that probably at some point, you know, that you either the federal government has a problem paying the rates on its on its newly issued debt, so the Fed's not going to be the Fed's not going to bankrupt the federal government. They're supposed to be independent, but likely they blink and rates come back down at some point. So the bulls say when rates come back down, housing goes back up because that's the relationship. What I think it misses is the fact that house prices are so high that median incomes can't afford median house prices. And so whether the it's an the interest rates coming down may very well goose them back up a little bit, but there's either one of two things happens. Either you just have no growth for a very long period of time, which is one of the things that you see that in the stock market, but you get a lot of the volatility in between. You could have just 10 or 15 years of house prices going nowhere. I don't think that really ever actually happens without volatility in between. I think you get crashes because people are levered. Some people need to flip houses. And I, I th- I've seen some research that in some of the more speculative markets, at some point through 2019 or 2020, the house flippers kind of took over. And house flippers are less price uh, sensitive than people who are buying to live in the houses because the house flippers are like, well, I'm going to improve it and roll this back out in the market. So they like prices going up. They're not afraid of prices going up. Whereas if you're buying it to live in it, you want the price as low as you can possibly get it, really. Right. So at some point, the people who are actually residential just leave, and the people who are left in the market are the house flippers. And in those markets, you have open door and all of these eye buyers who are basically, they're really, really price insensitive. They have some algo that prices these houses. It's crazy. I've had offers on my house, and I live in a place that has a name that is very similar to another place in Arizona. But I'm in California, so house prices just tend to be a little bit higher. So the prices that I have been offered, you know, were much, much lower for my house. But I can imagine that there's somebody out there on the other side of that who's getting an offer that's much, much more for their house. You know, 
you've always got the option when someone when an iBuyer makes you an offer, you stick it out in the market and you find what the market thinks. If the market says uh, take the iBuyers off, you're going to go. You're always going to. They're always going to get the worst price. And I think that that's why Zillow left the market. Redfin's left the market. I think Open is trying to transition to kind of an analytics type company now, and they've got a lot of re- they've got a lot of inventory. They've got to tip out. Even though their inventory is only like one and a half or two percent of the entire market, that marginal seller might turn out to be very important, and that might be the thing that collapses the market. I think we've got a lot of housing difficulties in front of us, and then that flows through to the rest of the economy. That shows up in orders, that shows up in profits, and eventually that shows up in employment. So, why the why the rally in the in the prices? The only thing that I can think is that. There's this sort of technical, you know, things get oversold. The short sellers decide that they've feasted enough and they start covering and then the bulls interpret that as being a new bull market. If you look at any crash, any major crash, like a 2007 to 2009, 2000 to 2002, and you look at the behavior in those crashes, it's always the same. And well, I've got, I've got uh, the price action of about a dozen of the, or the last dozen crashes, and they all look exactly the same. There's basically this one-third, two-thirds idea. The first two-thirds of the time, you see one-third of the price decline. And the last third, you see two-thirds of... The last third in time, you see two-thirds of the price decline. And you can imagine that looks like an increasingly steep sell-off. And you can go back and look in 2007, 2008, 12 months after 2007 crash, we had almost rallied back to all-time highs. And all of the carnage happened in that last third of the time. Same thing happened in 2000. We'd almost rallied all the way back up and then we saw all of the carnage in the end. So here we are, we've almost rallied. I think we're 6% or something below the all-time highs. We're not very far off the all-time highs anyway. Well, it, it's different. So I think I think Dow was like 8%, 9% okay. off all-time highs. S&P I still think is like 13. Uh, NASDAQ is still a bit more. But it reminds me, I, I was looking back through history, just kind of going through, trying to see if I remembered things the way that I thought I did. And I remember being really frustrated, but I did not remember how extreme it was, meaning on September 1st, and I could have this slightly off, but 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 it's close. On September 1st, 2008, I think the S&P was down like a 10.8% from its all-time high. Two weeks later is when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy, mm-hmm. right? So it followed exactly what you're talking about. We were down just about 10% off the all-time highs. And remember that after that summer... When we rolled in 10%, 10.8% or something like that off all-time highs, Countrywide had folded up that summer. Bear Stearns had basically folded up mm. that summer. I mean, the writing was on the wall, and the market was just like, nope, don't want to hear it. You know, um, the bottom's in. And, I, 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 you know, again, you hate to extrapolate and say, oh, like last time. But it is oddly reminiscent. You know what I mean? Like it, it, there is there is odd reminiscence. And then on top of it, like you said, the weakening we're seeing, you know, on top of real estate and cars, but the weakening you're seeing in consumer spending, the ISM number is almost universally below 50, right? Like, I mean, everything again, it, it, this, this will be historic one way or the other. If you don't have a recession, um, right, that really flips things because you've never had a there's never you've never te- checked all these boxes and not had a recession right that's right it's historic either way right and so that's kind of where i'm sitting there going well you know i hope we're on the right side of it either way we're in for a show uh let's see now 
one thing I have noticed is something that you're talking about, and it does give me some some encouragement. You know, I run our value fund, so so I'm looking for good prices and good deals too. Um, one thing I've seen happening, and full disclosure, Zig is still one of our top holdings in in the value fund. So we're we're riding with you, pal, sticking it out. Uh, I appreciate it. No, and it's hey, and and it's been a lot more fun the last couple of years, hasn't it? Hasn't it? <laughs> Whew. Um, but you're starting to watch these beaten down names, even in the energy sector, right? Staying flat or maybe even slightly up on days where oil's getting hit or nat gas is getting hit. You look at some of these other value names where there's news coming out that might not be that good. And they're just hanging right in there, if not rallying a little bit on that bad news. And then you look at the valuations and I'm sitting there going, are we starting to see cheap, good companies starting to float a little bit? And it sure it sure looks that way. And there was one recently that I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if you've done any work on it. I haven't checked Zig to see if it's in there. I don't think it quite fits, fits Zig's metrics yet. Um, and, and full disclosure, I've not done a deep dive on the stock, so I don't know it inside and out, but we've started to. Um, and wish I'd have done it a little bit earlier because it was beaten down even more. But, man, especially after that queue they just announced, I'm not a big microchip guy, but, man, Intel is starting to look cheap. Have you, have you looked at Intel at all? Yeah, I have owned Intel in the past. Um, I sold it out a few quarters back uh, for, some, some of the, for some of the things that have sort of shown up more recently, just the deteriorating earnings. But Intel is close for me. It's one of those things that I really like. I really like the stock. Um, sometimes I just, you, you know, you, and I haven't, I haven't looked at it recently, so I don't know. After that most recent sell, if it's entirely possible, it's come back into my, into my hitting range. But I, I had bought it and uh, just looked at some of the deterioration and and got a little bit worried about those things. It's it's stretched the multiple a little bit. I don't know. It's certainly one of the ones that I like to buy because they're pretty good cash flowers. They have a you ton know, of cash. It, it, Occupy ton of cash occupies a unique position in. It's the only domestic U.S. chip maker, so you get some, you know, more polarization globally. You've got TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, which is in Taiwan, right across from China. Geopolitically, I don't know how safe that is. You, you look around the world, like Intel, based in the U.S., um, essential to just about everything in the world. That sort of becomes. Yeah. It's an attractive asset for that reason. Well, um, and, and the other thing that some of my tech, some of my, my millennials that are really tech savvy were filming, filling me in on is that they got into the GPU business too. And I didn't realize that. Were you aware of that? That they got into the GPU business? They're starting to make GPUs, the graphic cards too, like NVIDIA makes? I think I'm more of a, uh, I'm more quantitative. I tend not to look so closely at the changes in the business. I sort of assume that what they do in the business eventually shows up in the financial statements. And so I tend to spend more time in the financial statements. Yeah. I, Benjamin Graham used to call it double counting. You know, you, you give management credit for doing really great stuff. And then you look in the financial statements and there's really great stuff going on. So I just tend to, I just tend to stick to the financials. I don't worry too much about what management says. Like I like them to declare a buyback and then actually deliver on the buyback. And that's the, that's kind of the way that I, I check to see if they're being honest and how much they pay themselves and what the SBC looks like. So share-based compensation, all that sort of stuff. I tend not to be right in the weeds of the, of the businesses just for that reason that it's just too hard to be an expert on 
GPUs and at the same time an expert in energy and so on and so on. I, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, hey, full disclosure, man. Until I sat down for a tutorial with my employees, I, I, look, I'm just being honest. I was not a hundred percent certain about the difference between processors and GPUs. So, like, that's, that's how bad it is. Yeah, you but I'll, at least I'll at least I'll admit it. But but we don't own it either. So I haven't finished doing all my homework. But I was just looking at that dividend they pay out, and then looking at um, and it really is fascinating. And the bulls on this stock are going to come out and say, "Well, it's not the same thing." Um, go look at the valuation spread between Intel and Nvidia. That's wild. Whew. Well, and then to watch Nvidia rally. On a day like today, up like three, four, five percent, I think three, four percent on a day after Intel's earnings, you know, like, but again, I was going through this tutorial and I mean, these guys, these guys build all their own computers. You know what I mean? Like uh, one of my guys, my trader, actually in college, he built a web based extension to a popular web game. I'd never heard of it. This may come as a surprise to you, but I'm not really a gamer. Right. Uh, my wife says that I'm the oldest 40 year old to ever walk the earth. Uh, <laughs> so, and guilty, guilty as charged. Um, but he, you know, he built, they, he and his buddies built an extension onto the game that was so widely well received. The maker of the original game bought it from them and oh, then cool. paid them consulting fees in college. Right. So, I mean, we're talking that's very cool. And I, and I mean this with all affinity in the world, we're talking hardcore tech nerds. Right. But they were explaining to me how funny it was to watch Intel announce those earnings and watch NVIDIA soar because he looks at me and he goes, Zach, here's the way to think about it. Pretty much never, never is a GPU sold without a processor being sold. He goes, every once in a while, a processor gets sold without a GPU. And he goes, so if the processors are getting slaughtered and he goes, I can basically guarantee you the GPUs aren't going to be good either. Right. Mm. So, but just to watch this separation, you know, to, we're like, well, a global chip slowdown, that might hurt Intel, but NVIDIA is going to be golden. I mean, it just, it's like this era of wishful thinking. Just wait. It feels like a vampire. You know what I mean? Like we've pumped 20 rounds into this thing and it just keeps coming. <laughs> you know, you know I, well, as you pointed out, people have, people have been... Uh, conditioned to buy the dip over and over and over again. And the people who were more conservative and fearful of the overvaluation just start pulling back at some point. And then you start underperforming. And so you're a clown because you're underperforming. And the only people who have been able to keep up are the ones who are unhedged, um, basically price... Uh, you know, they ignore the price when they buy these things. They ignore the valuation when they buy these things. So all that's left in the market are the most aggressive speculative investors right at the very end. So we've had a little pullback over the last 12 months. It's not enough to give anybody religion. You know, people got religion in 2008, right near the end when the real fear. And I've said this, you know, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a friend, Chris Cole. He's a volatility guy. He's a tail risk volatility guy. You know, there was no volatility last year, and volatility is kind of a measure of the fear in the market. And I know just as a market participant, like March 2020, I had some genuine adrenaline flowing on some of those days. I could feel the fear in the market. And you just go onto Twitter and you get a contact high from yeah. the fear in the market. Last year, there was really nothing. People were like, well, 
this is what you'd expect after kind of such a bubblish run, a little bit of a pullback. You know, they said, oh, this is a healthy pullback and then we'll take off again. And here we are in 2023. We're rocketing back off to new all-time highs. But we haven't had the fear, really, the fear of God put into us yet. And I... Well, I mean, every generation gets it. Yeah, well, and you look at last year too, and, and in classic bear market uh, trends, and I, it's very much still happening today. That, again, traditionally speaking, and the one caveat I throw at this, Tobias, is that there really is no historical comp for where we're currently at. Meaning, you know, never before have we had the U.S. government effectively print one third of the entire size of the economy, dole it out. And then inside of inside of 36 months, pivot to the hardest and largest, quickest interest rate hikes in history. Right. So to me, the way I view that is I just kind of look at it as a dense, a condensed cycle. Right. But at the same time, knowing that, you know what I mean? Like taking a typical eight to nine year cycle and you just pack it into three years is kind of the way that I look at it. That being said, I have to approach it with a little less certainty because it is such a you know historical comps probably mean a little less in this environment than they have before because what happens when you go from a fiscal handout that is the equivalent of one-third the size of your economy to rate hikes i don't really know you know people don't you know we just we just don't know what i don't think happens is that it's just that you're buzz light year in this thing and we're to infinity beyond and just blasting off again I got a I got a tough time seeing that coming, but um, the exuberance. The other one that I've been laughing about is, I, well, you brought up the volatility index. To look at that backdrop with companies like Intel announcing what they're doing, right? Amazon's guide, Microsoft's guide, just going down the list, looking at the layoffs in tech, real estate, cars, all this kind of stuff. You look at the volatility index. You're in 18. You got to trade with an 18, yeah. level, right below the long term average. Yeah, and. I think, again, you and I have spoken about this, and I've learned this the hard way over time, is that I always try to avoid silver bullet type thinking, right? Like, this is the cause. This is the reason. But um, I think one of the things, and I've done some homework on this. I've talked to several guys that really know vol. Maybe there's some vol experts listening to me out here who are going to roll their eyes and be like, oh, this guy's clueless. But, But I think... If you look at the persistent buying on these short dated and zero date to expiry options, I mean, it's there's these guys are still in there rolling the dice on margin. I was read zero DTE options on margin, right? Like, is this going to be the one time in history where being the most irresponsible investor is what pays? Because. You know, I was talking to my guys about it this morning and I was like, you know, it's really a, you know, we're going to stick to our guns and and pay attention to the value on the value side because that's our job is value and, you know, value managers and all that kind of stuff. But just sitting there thinking, is, is, is this going to be that one time where, you know, being, being prudent and being conservative is to be wrong? I, you know, again, like I said, you gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta look at all the fundamentals and all that kind of stuff. But just watching, you know, watching this stuff rip, you're just like, good God, people. I mean, well, all the conservatism does, I think, and I hear you that it does seem that the people who are the most aggressive and the most speculative do seem to have the best time in the market, right? Like it does seem to run the hardest for them and everybody else is a little bit conservative, just gets left behind a little bit. But the conservative guys survive the busts. Right. 
and they're there for the next cycle. And then it's like you look at Buffett. Every time there's a bull market peak, there's a magazine cover that says Buffett's lost it and he's too old and he doesn't understand the new paradigm. And he must just laugh at this point because he's seen so many of them. But sure enough, almost always on the back of that, there's a crash and all of the new Warren Buffetts get washed away and the old Warren Buffett's still there. And that really, I and think, is the key. And outperforming. Like, <laughs> I think that's the key. You've right. you just got to survive the cycles. It's not so much winning every cycle. You know, it's like the uh, Terry Smith, who's this British uh, quality investor, he talks about the Tour de France and he says, you know, there's stages in the Tour de France and he says the people who end up winning the Tour de France are not the ones who win every single stage or they're not the ones who win the most stages. They're the guys who survive to the end who've got the steam at the end of the thing to keep on pushing like they're the guys who end up winning the whole thing and that's the way i think too I'm, i don't want to win i don't need to win every leg of this i just want to be there through this cycle i'm wholly focused on survival 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 get to the other side if you get to the other side you can keep on going and you can you can iterate and you can improve your process if you're not there if you're going back to zero that's very very hard particularly if you've got the kind of strategy that does really well in the good times and then blows up completely in the bad times. Just to go back to something that you were talking about before, one of the other criteria, one of the other things that we haven't really talked about was that in 1980, interest rates were at all-time highs and they were at all-time lows not that long ago. And we really only just started raising rates. And I don't know if we're in a new sort of rate, an interest rate rising environment, but it certainly does seem that way. That's an entirely different investment environment to the one that we've been through. Falling rates typically lead to rising multiples. Rising rates typically lead to falling multiples. So we've got very high multiples on the index. They could easily compress for a very extended period of time. If you go back before 1980 and you look at the 70s where we had very high inflation, we had an energy shock, we had a stock market that had come off a boom in the 60s. It was the electronics boom, and when that crashed, there's a very nasty recession. There was lots of money printing, which led to lots of inflation. There was an energy crash. Sounds, sounds a lot like what we're seeing today. And you can go through year by year and look at the inflation rates in there, and it's kind of interesting to see what happened. There was a shock right at the very start where they saw rates go to sort of uh, inflation rates go to like 9%, 8%. And then they came down a little bit two or three years into it. They sort of looked like they were coming back to normal. I think they got down to 6%, something like that. And everybody relaxed. And this is the thing. everybody With inflation expe- now. That's it. Everybody yeah. thinks, everybody expects that it's all a short-term phenomenon. We've solved that problem. Now it's back to the races. But it turned out to be much more persistent than people thought. And it crept back up again. And it's sort of the, the real nasty inflation sort of came much closer to the end when you got those teens type inflation like that's a that's a pretty awful scenario if we see something like that we've got energy um has been had a pretty good run and now it's got beaten up a little bit again but we've got geopolitical issues it's hard to drill for for oil we've sort of getting to there's a there's a societal sort of push against fossil fuels what that means is it's been underinvested. and our demands for energy are still as high as they have always been. In, if anything, they're higher, higher every single year. Yeah. They come down a little bit in recessions, but but not much. It's, it's still, we're talking, you know, basically all of the crude that gets pumped in the world gets consumed almost immediately. There's There's really no slack in that system at all. So I think everybody's expecting all of this to be over. 
The same thing happened in the 70s. This is when Carl Icahn came in and he bought some of these energy companies. He was buying them at one-times earnings. And clearly the reason they were at one-times earnings was they had a very, very good year where they'd made a whole lot of money, but the equity hadn't gone anywhere because people knew, like, this stuff's really cyclical. They'll come back. These earnings, they're over-earning. And d- does that scenario sound like, like that's exactly what we're looking like now right there? Oh, my God. Cheap. We're, I mean, we're watching. I've, I've got, we've got names in our portfolio that are throwing off 30 35% free cash flow to market cap, pristine balance sheets, not a cent of debt, trading at four and a half, five times earnings. You know, um, And again, that's more than Icon was paying. But what was the market multiple at the time when energy was trading at one times earnings? It probably well, wasn't 22 these are unique. These these are unusual examples. They just I just use them as as you know. There will be, but we'll, we will see big tech. Sorry, not big tech. Big cap uh, energy. I think you get there's a, there's a chance you get some of this stuff where you get or you get a steel company. You get you get these things that are yeah they are cyclical businesses, but they do go through these periods of time where there are shortages of these things, and to supply the market, they just operate at full capacity and they absolutely mint money. Yeah, and it's entirely possible that we go into. A scenario like that because we've underinvested in them for so long. The tech guys don't want to touch them because the earnings are too cyclical. The people who have sort of made all of the money over the last decade are the ones who don't want to touch them. But 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of where that Buffett approach comes into, right? Where where like if you look at what he's backed up the truck on and we've thought I mean he has loaded the barrels with Occidental and, and Chevron, right? right? Um, was it Chevron? Yeah, yeah, it was Chevron. Um, because I hear what the tech guys are saying, and, and and again, I'm throwing this at you like a statement, but it's also a question to see if you see if you agree with it and get your take on it. After all, folks, he has been published four times for value books. I have not been, so this is why we have him on. He's credible. Where I'm just a guy screaming into the wind. Um, but but that's kind of the kicker, isn't it? Where you're. You, it's a cyclical business, but if you can buy that business cheap enough, it sort of offsets that cyclicality, right? Like, for instance, we bought ConocoPhillips for 29 bucks a share during the middle of the – right at the tail end of the COVID lockdown, and I think it was paying 8.5% in dividends. I got to go back and check this now because they've had a few dividend hikes since then, obviously. But I think that those original shares we bought at 29 bucks a share, I think they're throwing us off – like 11 or 12% dividends based on our original purchase price, right? Well, if I'm getting an 11 to 12% dividend on a cyclical company, I, I, I'm not that worried if I shave 20 to 30% off the stock price, right? Because that cash spends, baby. Now, <laughs> right, do I want to buy these cyclical companies at the peak when they're rolling at 20, 25 times? No, right? Because then, then that cyclical downturn, you're going to get your head scalped. But that is that dynamic, do you think? Because, I mean, you would know this better than I did, but I haven't seen Buffett back up the truck on a energy company or a commodity company like that in my career, right? So I started running money at the tail end of 2007. So when, when was the last time he was buying something like this that hard? He's done a few. He bought China National, C-N-O-O-C, China National Oil Company, something like that, and had had an absolutely like smashed it out of the parks because he's looking at the same his criteria so oxy is a pretty good template for what he likes to do there's a there's a slide in their investor deck where they said we're planning to do share buybacks we're planning to return a whole lot of capital 
even doing all of that capital return, we're still investing and we're still likely to be cash flow positive on very conservative assumptions for the oil price. And so that's the kind of thing Buffett wants. He wants cash coming back at him, and you can't blame him for that. So he's gone and bought that, and that's had a pretty good run. When did, he buy, uh, when did he buy CNO, what, the China one? Oh, this is, that's a while ago now. That could be 2000. It might be four, five, six, that kind of time period. Okay. Okay. It's a more recent one. He certainly goes – He, you know, the, the, uh, the idea that Buffett is this – he only buys compounders is wrong. Like he buys the stuff if it gets cheap enough. If on, an, if on a normalized basis, it's going to throw off cash and it's going to be – and the management's doing the right thing. He's, he's, he's in there and buying, even if it is a cyclical – provided that it's cheap enough. And another, like as you point out, uh, bad cop, COP, ConocoPhillips, they just announced a $75 billion buyback. Like, brings a tear to your eye how uh, <laughs> that's, that's a giant buyback. Wasn't that Exxon, actually? Wasn't that Exxon, or was that COP? I'm pretty sure ConocoPhillips has done it just recently. Let me see. Now we got to check it, because I, I was... I was actually getting excited, because I saw that release from Exxon, and I went, okay, Conoco's got to be right behind them, because they're minting money. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. To 20 billion, I think they said increases share buyback by by 20 billion. Yeah, well, I know, but either way, the point is, is it's still coming. And I mean, these guys. That's one of the things that I think is so attractive, which is when you look at the political headwinds against them. If we're looking at this as a traditional investor, right, where we actually care about cash flows, we're not just obsessed with growth at any cost, right? Um. I, I think they're going to have to keep doing this. They don't have any other place to deploy the capital. I mean, I think it's just going to be a gravy train. And then you flip around. And the other thing I think is really fascinating that, I, that, that my, in my opinion, that a lot of market participants are going to get a lesson in is the downside of this approach of growth at any cost, which is especially outside of a 0% interest rate where cash flow starts to matter. Right. Watch the growth rates of some of these compounders just collapse. Right. Because you and I both know there's a bunch out there masquerading as if, well, we can turn the profit on anytime we want. Sure, you can. Sure, you can. Right. Well, and I think Tesla's a perfect example of this recently. Right. Well, we're seeing a reacceleration in the first quarter. Well, yeah, but how much did you just slash prices across the board? Right. So if you've got to keep slashing prices to maintain demand, guess where your margins are going to end up? right smack dab in the middle of every other mod auto manufacturer's margins, right? And and I think Bloomberg was the one recently that put out that note, and maybe it was a little while ago, but saying, first of all, Tesla does different accounting, right? Meaning that I, I, they don't factor their cogs into, into, into gross margins. Is that correct? Tesla's accounting is very difficult to understand. And the worst thing about it is it changes from quarter to quarter. So you can't really even get a read on a quarter to quarter basis. I've basically given up. Uh, trying to analyze it, but they're, they're some of the most highly engineered financial statements out there. It, re- it really is. And, and I was pounding the desk for fraud on this thing, and that was like five years ago. And I, you know, it's so heavily followed, and it's gotten such a, a, a loyal following, and the performance has been so good. So I'm not sure if there is fraud there anymore. I've really pulled back on that thought. I will just sit well, there. Well, they certainly had a. They certainly faked a, uh, a FS uh, full self drive uh, video the same way that Trevor Milton did. Isn't it amazing how the market just shrugs that off too? 
I, like, I'm convinced that this guy's got, like, some serious compromising pictures of some elected officials or something. I mean, just, you know, funding secured. You go down at one. The the other biggest thing I have, though, is I sit there and I look at the numbers. Like, what was it? Was it a quarter or two ago where they showed that their SG&A expenses were flat year over oh, year? Yeah. And yet the deliveries had doubled. It was the same number too. It was like six hundred and one million. It was it was two weird prints right in, they were to the to the penny. They were the same. How it's is like that even possible? That. How can you like and and correct me if I'm wrong? Because again, I know you're. I mean, you've all got you're almost a forensic accountant. But um, I was sitting there thinking about that conceptually and going, you know, that may be possible with a software company, right? Because they can just push stuff out over the air. But when you're talking about a car company delivering twice as many automobiles how is that even possible look i think anybody who's like a a real fundamental investor has their heads broken by tesla a little bit the accounting's just too hard to kind of figure out i don't know how honestly i don't know i don't know what goes on with tesla i've just sort of put it into the too hard basket these days optically to me it looks very expensive um and you point out they've been lowering the prices on their cars they've also they were going to build a second line a second production line in china they're not doing that i did just all of that says that in, there's some demand collapse going on a little mm-hmm. bit you don't cut prices if you've got really really strong demand for your cars you know i it's i continue to say man that shareholder base should be the envy of all ceos because amazing really it really is i mean it really is it really is incredible and the way that they keep going in on it and the way that they keep buying it and the way that they keep 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 making promises i mean that being said they have made tremendous progress as a company i mean i never thought that we'd be talking about this in 2023 um it is amazing the products that they announced that never see the light of day like the the, the roadsters never seen the light of day. The Cybertruck's never seen the light of day. Um, that Solar City got bought and shut down. I don't know if the has the has the semi actually rolled off. Are they delivering semis? Is that actually happening? They've delivered a couple, but there's also some of it's anecdotal and some of it's factual. There's been a lot of breakdowns apparently. Mm. Like I mean, these things are brand new, right? And then I've seen multiple videos that show these things broken down on the side of the road, getting picked up by a tow truck. Right. But I mean, the other thing with the semi is is watching the Tesla people expand, it, like, you know, stretch this out. Um, you know, you might get regional guys like Pepsi or whatever for optics to buy a little fleet and have it move around the city. These are not suitable for long hauls. I mean, they and which is how truckers get paid. Right. Like, it's just yeah. not it's not suitable. The range isn't there. The it, Like, it's just you're just not there. And when, you know, when you look at these truckers, right, getting from point A to point B is how they make their money and driving through the night and, you know, 10-4 rubber duck, all that stuff. (laughs) Right. Those those guys, they're not pulling in to supercharge their stuff for an hour and a half every time they run out of, you know, run out of gas. Um, And then not to mention the other issue that I've always had with them is being an investor in uh, um, PACAR for a long time, made some Mm. good money on PACAR. one of the things that puts Packard in such a dominant position when it comes to semis is they make a really good product, obviously, and they do a really good job. But really, it's their part network. So, like, the, mm. their global parts network to be able to get, you know, and you think about, te- I mean, you've got people that have had a Model S in a shop for four months because they can't get service done on it. If you're running a trucker fleet, you can't do that. You can't do that, man. I mean, you'll blow yourself up. 
So I just think reality is coming to the fore in so many of these things. And I don't, you know, I'm not saying it's going to zero or it's not going to be around or whatever, but you know, that, that drift down to more traditional metrics. I mean, it looks like it started. It's, it's, I agree. It tends to go on. The amazing thing about Tesla is how heavily traded it is. You know, I've got these little, the websites that I just look at to check the, you know, check the price, the close of an index. And you look on the, the, it'll, it'll have Tesla listed before SPY. There are more people trading Tesla than there are SPY on some days, which is absolutely insane. It's that, insane. You know, it's, that's, it's that sort of size. But that's what's created the, um, that's created a lot of products around it. They've been able to raise money and that's funded a lot of their growth. At some point, they have to actually show what they can do. And I think that they have, you know, they, they're, they're, they're profitable on an earnings basis. They seem to be throwing off some free cash flow to the extent that you can believe those things. It does seem to be going on. I, I'm, I'm so conflicted with Tesla because on one part, I really like Musk and I really want him to succeed. On the other hand, you know, I'm, I have to look at the financial statements and it has to, you know, I don't really care what management says. It has to sort of be reflected in the financial statements and I just can't get a read on those financial statements, which is weird for such a big company with so many people following it. I don't talk to anybody who's invested in it and come away thinking they have a better understanding of it. I think that they just sort of glossed over some of the things. And the guys who I really respect as sort of, you know, great shorts like Jim Chanos or Steve Clapham, who's a forensic accountant in the UK, like they can't figure out how it's doing what it's doing. And I, that makes me feel a little bit better about the fact that I haven't got there either. Yeah, man. I no, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I'm sitting here trying to do the math on this real quick. So one, so you'd be 300. I'm trying to do the math on how many shares traded today because it is stupefying the volume on this thing. I don't know if you've got that number right in front of you, but I'm looking at see 300. One, two. So you're. Uh, I mean. I could be off, but I'm looking at like 35, 40% of the market cap traded today. Is that right? Something yeah, like that? I believe that? it. Well, I believe it. Yeah, like, like, so, you know, you had 304 million shares trade at a buck 77. This is super dirty back of the envelope mass, so I could have bumped the, bumped the comma on somewhere. But I, you, you got to be looking at 170. I mean, what, that's got to be around 70. Would that be $70 billion somewhere in there yeah, traded today? Like which is, you got a market cap of, well, okay, so not quite that big. So you're at 561. But still, what is that? 20, 15%. Yeah. yeah, 15, 20% of the market cap on a mega cap, $500 billion company. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Amazing. Especially when you think of how many shares aren't free trading, right? Like, right. you know, you take Musk's pile, set it aside, you keep doing, you know. Um, and in addition to that, like, you, there's a whole derivative stream that's backed out of that as well, like the zero day options that are traded on the back of Tesla, all of those sort of things. It's very, very heavily traded. Okay, so what – and I've soaked up enough of your time here. I realize that you do have things to do other than talk to us. So any other thing catcher – what is – so through the quantitative approach, any any new ads to Zig or do you see Zig being attracted to any new stuff over the last six months that you hadn't really looked at before? Has it added energy? What's kind of going on with Zig? We've bought a little bit of energy as as energy sort of pulled back a little bit and the underlying earnings have been quite strong. So that's, you know, where I like flows. So I tend not to be a balance sheet investor in the sense that, so a lot of guys who who 
like balance sheets, looked at energy. When you know when energy went negative, when oil went negative, a lot of value guys who I really respect bought a whole lot of the energy stocks at that point because that's an extreme move. Yeah, I mean, Guilty. I take my hat off to I take my hat off to you that that was a that was a that was the right time to buy. It. Didn't buy as much as I should have in retrospect, obviously. I'm more of a I like the flows. I like to actually see. Um, them minting the money so it takes me a little bit longer to get into them and so i i bought them on a more recent pullback and the sort of things that i like the two things that i really like a cash rich balance sheet or at least enough liquidity to survive whatever happens so they're not reliant on the on the financial markets which can shut up at the very worst times for many businesses and then i want free cash flows being thrown off pretty extensively and then i want management doing something with those free cash flows i want them buying back stock and the reason why that's important is if you get a big crash, you get a big markdown. They can use those free cash flows to buy back stock. And that I don't care so much about the mark to market move. I care more about their ability to concentrate intrinsic value in the stock that remains outstanding, which is the stuff that I hold. The long track record for managers who are able to make those really good repurchases is very, very good for those businesses. So those are the kind of businesses that you want to be in. Free cash flow leading to buybacks, very strong message. Management knows what it's doing. It's really undervalued and they really do have genuine free cash flow because there's lots of companies that, you know, they publish free cash flow figures, but all of that free cash flow has to be reinvested back into the business. And so it's not real free cash flow. Buybacks sort of show that it is real free cash flow. So that's my... um, quick and dirty sort of explanation for what I do. I like quality balance sheets, quality earnings, quality cash flows that are reinvested in sensible ways. I like the flows coming back towards me. It's the same way Buffett does. I like to see the cash flow coming out of it. I think that's the best best, uh, indication that it's worth holding. Yeah, and that's the one thing... Intel does have a lot of cash, but I just pulled up the balance sheet and was looking at it. I, and I, again, we just started looking at it. I don't have a position yet. But you've got zero net cash, it looks like. I mean, if you count, you got cash and cash equivalents at $28.4 billion. You got net debt, or excuse me, total debt, long-term debt at $33 billion. Um, so, I mean, you know, you got receivables at $9.5 billion, inventory at ten point seven. So... You could look at it and say they've got no net debt, but I would like to see that that cash-to-debt ratio a little bit better because, like you said, you get into this situation when you've got these cash-rich balance sheets and the stock's dropping. I'm not saying it's fun, but every dollar of stock buybacks, it's just buying you more and more and more of the company. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, it's not fun in the process, but in the meantime, you're looking at it and going, probably want this thing to drop more. You know? I mean, that was, I agree. That was certainly my view with Facebook. So I, I bought F- F- Meta, you know, um, we bought it mid last year. So it had already been quite beaten up, but it, it's been more beaten up since we bought it. But that's, it's certainly, it looks like it's turned around. But the nice thing about Facebook is it's, it throws off an insane amount of cash. That business is still growing. There's people, people still use those websites. The right. usership is still growing. As hard as that is to believe, because I don't spend a lot of time in there, but, but they, they they definitely are still. Like the numbers show that they are still growing. The big risk with something like Facebook is you got Zuckerberg has welded himself into the shuttle, and he seems to be flying off into the metaverse, and everybody else, because we don't own voting shares, we're all in on Zuck, and we're going wherever he's going. I think that I don't know. I mean, I, 
I don't know whether the metaverse is a real thing. I don't know if that's going to work or not. I have no idea. I actually don't care because this thing throws off so much cash that Zuck can waste it there for a little while. The good news is that while the stock's really crushed, they are buying back a whole lot of stock. And so your, your, your share of that business is growing all the time while they're doing that. If at some point um, he works out that the metaverse hasn't really worked, hasn't paid off, and they go back to their old business that's probably the that's probably the best case scenario. I, I don't I don't know whether the metaverse is a real thing or not. It's probably not. Who knows? But you got to back him because he's pulled off a few pretty impressive stunts. Well, it it is reminiscent. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something embarrassing to you. Okay, so we owned it for a while, done pretty well on it, and then coming into 2022, so fall of 2021, we dumped it, and the reason we dumped it was because. The stock continued to perform despite the fact this and, and a, a buddy of mine ran a portfolio for Griffin at Citadel. So he and I were having a discussion about that and we were talking about it. And he goes, I don't want anything to do with it. And I was like, well, why? And he goes, well, it, you know, they, they've announced that he's pouring 20 billion right into the metaverse and the stock continued to rally. And he goes, in this fundamentally blind world, he goes, we're just, he goes, I'm expecting for the quarter to come out for earnings to be abysmal based on what he's given forward guidance for and have the market to be shocked. And I sat there and listened to that and I went, you know what? Actually, that actually makes a lot of sense because we know people aren't staring at fundamentals and this thing that we all know is coming, it's probably going to shock people because they're right there. You and I both know the one thing not happening right now is an abundance of people ripping through the queue in detail. You know what I mean? Like going, <laughs> right? Really ripping through the quarter and, and, and going through the numbers. And uh, so I was like, you know what? That's sound enough logic. We're going to dump it and see if it gets cheaper. So, I mean, we top ticked it right around 350 And then I jumped back in because it was just too juicy and started buying some stock at 125 And then they came out and announced another number and the stock got pummeled. And I think we unloaded it at like 110 And my theory, the- theory at that time was look, this is a broken story. We should probably catch it drifting lower. So we unloaded it at like 110 after picking it up at 125 because I thought I'd be able to get it. And I'm kicking myself because it's a classic mistake. You bought it for the cash flow. You should have stuck with it. I'm hoping I get another crack at it. I'm still not convinced that I'm not going to see it somewhere in that level just because of what's going on. But, you know, I just, I want to tell people when I botch one because I'm not one of those, you know, you and I have joked around. We're two of the only guys that have had losing trades on Twitter. I like meta the stock that is that is Facebook. I, I think I think that we started buying at about 156, and I thought at 156 that it was about half price because I thought the cash flows were very good. So I've continued to buy it as it's gone down, and it can, you know, the underlying story. I don't like the website. I don't really like Zuck. I don't really like how any of that stuff works. But I do think that it is a mind control machine. And I think it's a very powerful mind control machine. And that's available that you can buy publicly. People get addicted to it and they they use it a lot and it makes a lot of money. And he can waste some money and it still doesn't really impact how good that business is because it doesn't require a lot of money to run that business, even wasting $20 billion a year, which sounds like a lot. Or tw- I'm not even sure, $20 billion a quarter. sounds like a lot relative to what they meant. It's not that much. Are, are you familiar? You've probably seen the movie, but have you read the book and, or the movie of Ready Player One? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Both. Okay. Do you think that it's possible 
that Musk is, or, or excuse me, that, that, that Zuck, Zuck is gone like full God mode where like he's buying his own hype and he's playing out the story of Ready Player One. Almost for sure, yeah. Right, because because the the, 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 the similarities between the two are just, it, it wasn't the metaverse, but what was it called? It was the... Um, I think it was the metaverse, wasn't it? What, no, it was called the... Um, Is that a William Gibson line, the metaverse? That, that could be right. Yeah, it, it was It was called the... Uh, oh, I'm forgetting, but right, they had to get the haptic suits and they're all in the, you know, the, the, the mobile homes all stacked yeah, on each other. Right. The Oasis. Right. That's right. It was the, the Oasis. Oasis. You're right. You're right? right. But, but, but remember, that was founded by essentially a tech billionaire who almost drove his company bankrupt building the Oasis, and then it became the only game in town. And I just sat there and I was like, has this been such a long tech run that these guys are legitimately starting oh, sure. to see themselves as deities and he's <laughs> playing out Ready Player One with his company? Look, I've, I've seen the metaverse. I've, I, I, I've seen some corporate implementations of the metaverse and, you know, it's just you, – you've seen all of that. You've seen it before. Like you, it looks like you've got a little character that you can guide through a kind of a room – you know, I don't think that that's the way that the world is going to go. I don't think people want to be that immersed in it. But I, I don't know. I could be wrong. It, but to me, it doesn't really matter because that their main business is selling advertising and they have all of this information about the people who use WhatsApp, the Blue, the Blue website, Instagram. You know, the list goes on and on. They have lots of these products that are sort of under-monetized that at some point they will, they'll switch it on and they'll figure out how to sell they're the they are the greatest curator of consumer data in the history of mankind. Right, and they use it so much better. Like you compare it to something like Twitter, which I use a lot. I use Twitter much more than I use anything else. For all of the information that I have typed into that machine, like, typed into that website, like it really has no idea who I am. Right. Whereas Instagram, if I go on Instagram and I look at something, they're very good at targeting ads and retargeting ads. Like they really know if you're looking to buy something. If they show it to you enough times, they'll get you to buy it. Well, so I think that they're day, much well, better at it. In the, in the early days of Bulwark, before we really started doing, um, uh, before we started doing seminars and 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 uh, you know roadshows and you know the podcast and all that stuff, um, we used uh, uh, Facebook ads for a lot. It it like people are like, oh yeah, no. If you don't think Facebook ads are good, you haven't used them. I mean, it, it's the. the we made, I mean, we made some good amounts of money off of it, and you know, filled up seminar rooms and did it just off Facebook ads. I mean, it's powerful the way they place the ads, the way you can target demographics. Um, you know, it's like my coach, my coach in college used to say, "It's not good because it's old; it's old because it's good." I mean, <laughs> right? They make all that money because the stuff works, and um, I just couldn't get over that whole Ready Player One thing because I'm sitting there going, "This guy is playing." I. I it right like the the similarities are just too striking. He has. He to wants be it a, to be true. He he does. I, he does, and I bet you he's got his haptic suit and he's throwing his axes <laughs> out there. And you, you see the video of him throwing axes and stuff like that, which is funny because you know with his arms it looks like they're going to break when he's you know throwing the axe because he's. I saw him doing a little bit of MMA. Oh, pretty uh, good thing. He's so he's <laughs> he's attempting to convert into an alpha. Is what's happening here, right? <laughs> well, he did look pretty cool on that uh, that hover. F- foil board yeah yeah the american flag yeah I, like, I thought i was i thought that looked pretty cool he what he ought to do is he ought to he ought to buy like a hollowed out volcano and create himself like a proper oh, yeah super villain yeah you know what i, I mean? agree 
Like that's it, if you had all that money, that's the first thing you'd do. Go and build yourself a supervillain lair, honey. Sharks with laser beams. That's right. We're moving to a volcanic island. Pack it up. We've hit the big time, baby. Um, okay. So, anything else in closing that you've noticed that you want to? Like I said, I'm soaking up too much of your time here because I do this all day with you. But anything else that you're keeping an eye on that's really piqued your interest that we should we should kind of keep our eyes peeled for? So, the, I think that the two big the two big ideas that the things that I really watch are. That ten three inversion, which we've now we've met all of the criteria for a recession in about nine to fifteen months, ten months being the midpoint of that. When recessions come in, stock market returns tend to crashes tend to be much bigger. If you don't have a recession, the average drawdown's about twenty percent. In a recession, the average drawdown's about forty percent. It's twice as bad. So you need to be conscious of that happening at least have a plan for what you're going to do when that happens the other thing i look at is the value spread which is how undervalued the value stocks are relative to the rest of the market and that was the percentile that i was talking about before we're like 90 95th percentile still under still even after the move that we've had over the last few years it takes a really long time for that to work its way off because those portfolios are being rebalanced all the time. And so once something gets more expensive, it moves out of the portfolio, you rebalance into a cheaper portfolio. And that's that's been what's happening, even though we have had a little bit of a move. It's only really, really recent that it started moving in value's favor. It's only like two or three months that that's been happening, um, depending on how you measure. So according to the way that I measure it. So I think that what I think is going to happen is that we are going to see a lot of volatility on the index. Every portfolio is going to see it. Whether you value or not, you're going yep. to see that volatility. But being in value provides some protection because they tend to be better quality companies, more cash flow, tend to buy back some stock. And they're so undervalued relative to their own history on an absolute basis and relative to the rest of the market that good things can happen in those. They'll get good surprises rather than bad surprises. So I think that it'll be a good 10 or 15 years for value and could be a very flat, rough run for the rest of the market. Well, from your lips to God's ears, pal, um, I really, I believe it is time for us to have that wind at our backs. We've been those brave, intrepid souls just getting our faces beat in the last (laughs) 15 years, right? Like kind of looking that up and going, hey, man, we are due here. Come on, let us have our day. Still Any, here, though, man. Still here. Still yeah. going. Still Any, kicking. Anyway, so for the folks that, that don't know, they can follow you on Twitter at Greenbacked, and Backed is B-A-C-K-D, correct? Yeah, it was a silly way of spelling it. I don't know why I did it that way. but I, I, mean, I think it's short. It was like man, punked. Man. You remember the TV show Punked, P-U-N-K-D? Yeah, yeah. That was well, the kind of the idea. It was like a but, punk but see, kind of... Yeah, so it, I mean, these are the kind of things that old stodgy value investors like us have to do, right? So the kid... we. We gotta have something in common with the kids, so you truncated you it. Right? Well, I was a kid when I did that. That yeah, was like yeah. 2008 or something like that. <laughs> I was thinking when when this whole value barrage started, I had a full head of hair, and no grays, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look at me now. The power alleys are coming in. I'm losing it by the day here. Uh, I got the yeah, grays in uh, the beard, gray beard. Yeah, and in a few years here, I'm going to be able to play Santa Claus. I'm going white. <laughs> anyway, it, so the other thing too is your fund, which I can't really. You know, from one money manager to another, I can't really speak more highly of the approach I think somebody takes other than the fact that we we own their fund in our portfolio. Zig, uh, specializing in finding these, these, these deeply undervalued companies. And then it's also got a little short component where you, where you short the garbage, right? Well, we don't have that short component anymore. We rolled out of the shorts in late 2020. 
Oh, really? Um, okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. that yeah, probably we've, we've saved you over the. We've year talked and a half. about it. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit, but the, we, it caught that it's late twenty twenty one. We caught the first barrage of that arc kind of complex falling apart. And then um, for some regulatory reasons and for some survival reasons, I just thought it was was better to take the shorts out because it's a uh, uh, you know there's, there is always a risk with a short that you that you get as we saw you, when you get them run against you you can be um, you know the the infinite losses on that side and so I thought that a lot of the juice had come out. Um, you get Melvin capitaled. Been, yeah, exactly right. Or yeah. you know take your pick out of all of those guys. They yeah. get turned upside down. So we, um, it just became, it just sort of became too difficult to short in an ETF type format. So we rolled out of those, and so it's long only, okay. long in the um, most deeply undervalued cash flowing stuff that's buying back stock. And so there's no, I, I you know, my, my my main focus is survival. I care less really about mark to market in the short term, but as long as we're there on the other side, value will have its stay. And I think we're getting close. I think we're starting to see it now. And then the other one is deep, right? D- and deep is so EP. Zig is mid cap and large cap, and deep is small and micro. Exactly the same strategy, exactly the same stock picking process, and sometimes stocks that are that are in deep will graduate to Zig, and you know sometimes stocks that are in Zig will graduate into into deep for reverse graduation. And so the, the, and those guys are all ETFs. So Z I G Zig D E E P D E E P. Yeah, it's hard to say. D E E P. It's all That's E's. It. I kept feeling like I was sticking an extra one in there. And follow them at Greenback. You can go to acquiresmultiple.com, correct? Uh, That's the, it. The books, Deep Value, Acquires Multiple. What are the other two books? Quantitative I, I, Value and Concentrated Investing. But but the one the one that you want to look at is Acquires Multiple. That's it's like 10 bucks on Kindle. You can read it in two hours. It's written to a fifth grade reading level. It just explains my process, which is very sort of undervalued. And if you, and buy, and if you buy enough of them, you're going to aid our purchase of a hollowed out Volcano Island. So, <laughs> That's right. so do your part. Get us our villain lair. And uh, anyway, buddy, great to see you. Uh, great to have you on again. Hope I'm assuming family and the kiddos are doing well. Yeah, doing everybody's doing doing really well. We're excited. I got a I got a five, seven, and nine year old. Welcome to the jungle, brother. What, what are you at? I'm at twelve, ten, and eight. Oh, I'm peaking into teenage years. Oh, and I'm um, I'm just I'm holding on, man. I'm just I'm, I'm soaking up every last bit of this adolescent stage because oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna go to public enemy number one here pretty quick. So. Oh, it's a heartbreaker. Yeah, it is, man. Especially with these, especially the twelve year old's my baby girl. It's my princess. Yeah. So. I'm just hoping that there's enough. We're doing coffee dates, all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to keep her tight enough, you know, to where Good, man. she doesn't hate me. But, My oldest uh, is a girl, too. I'm in the same boat. I, I love her to death. I can yeah. see it happening, too. I know. I know. I'm just hoping I'm there for the turn, right? We're going to go through a long <laughs> period of growth outperforming value here. We just got to make oh. it through. We just got to make it through. Oh. All right, pal. Well, hey, thank you for all your time, and thank you guys so much for sticking with us. And uh, as always, going to be back next week. We've got several weeks of great interviews lined up. You won't want to miss them. So have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. 
The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.